Hey everybody, welcome back to the Car Tech Garage and this week in automotive history. What's up, Max? Oh, you know, just another Saturday morning, ready for some history. I can't wait for it to get warm. I know, it's, <laughs> it looks so great outside, but it's so, so cold. I know, I want winter to be history, but it's still here in all of its forms. Falling from the sky. Yeah, you're just excited to get the motorcycle out and about. And not oh, yeah. Freezing. I read it last weekend. It was nice enough to do it. I, I saw a bunch of people out this week. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. Even when I rode, I was a little weary when, you know, after a big snowstorm. And well, I mean, all the salt had gotten off the road, so we still had a pretty good amount of grip. Yeah, at least, the, at least enough to do a couple of good woolies. What about the potholes, though? I mean, is that oh, something you're, you're on oh, edge the whole time while they're, you're Yeah, they're all over the place now because what I've been doing is scanning the roads on my way home in my car and, like, trying to see <laughs> where the potholes are so okay. I can try to keep them in memory. Um, most I, I usually only try to ride on the nicest roads possible because potholes are just dangerous when you're trying to ride quick. Um, uh, yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not good while cornering. No, God, no. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and kick it off here. We're going to start way back in 1926 on February 28th, 95 years ago. Um, on this day, the son of Nicholas Otto, you guys know, might know who Nicholas Otto is. He you know, invented the four-cycle internal combustion engine mm-hmm. that we use today. Um, he had a son named Gustave. Now, Gustave was um, also an inventor. Um, you know, I mean, he built his his own uh, cars. He built his own airplanes. Built his own airplane engines as well. He started out, you know, racing cars and motorcycles as a young as a young man. Um, but on this day, he actually committed suicide at the age of forty three. Um, he had serious bouts with depression. They often impacted his business as well. And throughout the years, what had happened was, you know, he'd build a business, and you know, something would happen, and he would end up faltering with it. Um, he was married for a little while, got divorced, and there was a, this whole big thing because, I guess. Um, he was married and his wife divorced him and remarried. Okay. About eight months later, she died under very mysterious circumstances. And then about six months after that, he, he offed himself, um, which is terrible, terrible story, but it's just like, it's crazy. right? That sounds like a, like a podcast for like the crime, you know, they do all the Maybe. kind of but crime But the thing podcasts? is, I mean, everything's, everything's so muddled back then. I mean, you know, it's hard to find good information. I couldn't even find any articles as to, you know, exactly how she died. There's like three different, I guess, theories. (laughs) Well, you got to think that was a time when, you know, even though you and I live probably 15, 20 minutes away from each other, that it would have taken a month for me to mail a letter to you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm going to walk over to Max's house. I'll be back on Thursday. (laughs) Exactly. So the the reason I'm I'm bringing this up is because um, he actually had a car company for a while and his car company eventually got absorbed by the company that would become BMW. Um, and a lot of his designs went with it. So, you know, in many ways, Gustav Otto is considered one of the original founders and I guess uh, contributors to BMW and their engineering department for their vehicles. So I just thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the other thing, just, you know, be, because of speaking of airplanes and BMW, the logo does not represent airplane propellers, people. It doesn't. People need to stop saying that. What does <laughs> it mean? Well, so the logo was created in 1917. Um, and it, it's just basically based off of the Bavarian flag. Okay. okay. And it's also adapted um, from a different company earlier that had, you know, like this horse's head inside of, uh, inside of the circle. And they adapted that with the Bavarian flag, but the logo was created in 1917. And, um, the reason the myth started was because of a 1929 BMW advertisement where they actually put the logo with neon lights overlaid on an airplane propeller just for advertising. <laughs> I guess they, at the time 
were building a um, an engine for Pratt & Whitney under license. Okay. So they were manufacturing an engine for them, so they put that uh, BMW logo on the airplane. So sorry to burst anyone's bubble if you go around saying that, but <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> All right, so March 1st, 1969, 52 years ago, uh, one of my favorite drivers, Jackie Stewart, uh, he won the Formula One South African Grand Prix. Um, so it was a, the first race in the 1969 F1 season. And the first race he was driving, well, the, the whole season, obviously, he drove his Matra MS-10, um, Cosworth DFV powered, you know, dual <laughs> four valve V8. Um, and in this particular race, because they, they kind of got on him about it, but um, the team had fitted like these excessive wings on the front and rear of, of his Matra. Um, there was a spoiler positioned over each set of wheels here. I got a picture of it if you want to see it, Max. Look at that. <laughs> That's Just, some serious spoiler. Yeah, it is. That's a, uh, wow. That's some serious aerodynamics. Like I know in modern day terms, that probably doesn't look like it would fly, but I'm sure back then it oh, was, it, was, it flew for sure. <laughs> and obviously, you know, they, they got on him. He wasn't allowed to keep him the entire season, but, um, all right. So he finished over 18 seconds ahead of Graham Hill while he was driving his Lotus. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty incredible. Um, now with that, uh, same Matra, he ended up winning the 1969, uh, formula one championship. So really, really great driver. Um, I think he's, he's still alive. He's a uh, 90 or something now. Oh, 91. Crazy. Still kicking. Still kicking. Jackie Stewart. <laughs> they, they call him the flying Scott. The flying yeah, that, that's Scott. Yeah, that's his nickname, oh, wow. the flying Scott. I hope I can, you know, have a, a, a cool nickname, nickname <laughs> like that one day. <laughs> <laughs> I always call you Supremus Maximus. That's that not is, enough. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. So uh, March 2nd, 1935, 86 years ago. So Bill Cummings driving the Cummins diesel. Now it's not Cummins, it's Cummings. Um, Clessy Cummins actually started, you know, his, his uh, you know, Cummins engine manufacturer, but um, this car that he was driving was called the Cummins Diesel Special. And this particular model was the first model, uh, diesel model entered into the date or Indianapolis 500. And um, in 1934, this car actually finished 12th, which is pretty respectable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I, I can't remember if, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure it was the only car in the entire field that didn't have to stop for fuel the entire time. Really? Yep. I'm not and, sure um, on that fact. It was, it was slower wow. than the other ones, but obviously it, um, it it got to stay out on the field the entire time, so it still remained somewhat competitive. But on this so day... Is, is that uh, where the, the term, what is it, the the rabbit and the turtle, where the turtle wins the race? The tortoise and the hare, yeah. yeah. the tortoise and the hare. Or the rabbit and the turtle, <laughs> whatever. It's hey, a, you know, <laughs> it depends on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It depends on whether you're from Kentucky or Ohio, I guess. Um, but anyway, on this day, on March 2nd, um, Bill Cummings wasn't in the Indianapolis 500. He actually set a new diesel speed record for 137 miles an hour at Daytona Beach in this very same car. And it looks pretty sleek, that's, too. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful car. I mean, if you, no matter what size diesel it is, if you can compare it to the same size gas engine, a diesel's, you know, much heavier than your, you know, typically, average gas. Yeah. I mean, typically, they've, they're just built sturdier, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot more to them. Well, you know, they, they just the compression ratios are that's up to range, so they've got to be more it's, robust. It's under a lot of pressure. Oh, yeah. So March 3rd on, in 1932. Now, this one is really cool because I'm a big Bugatti fan. And this is the date that the second Bugatti Royale was completed. Now, not many people know about the Bugatti Royale, but uh, it is awesome. It came with a 12.7 liter straight eight, um, rated around 300 horsepower and over a thousand foot pounds of torque. It is one of the largest engines 
ever made for a car. Um, in fact, these engines were so capable that um, all of the leftover Royale engines were repurposed to power trains in France after <laughs> World War II. I'm not even joking about that. That's insane. Like, trains. they used the same engine to power it was, trains. It was passenger trains. I think, like, the, the French transit system or something. But, yeah, they would use what either year? two or four of these engines per train to power them. And they even detuned them. And what year is this? Um, so this was completed in 1932. That's insane. I mean, they, they made these cars just for a few years. There were only seven ever made. Six of them remain at Tor Bugatti that the founder of Bugatti actually wrecked one of them. <laughs> so there's only six left. Um, but that, this was actually the, the first one to be sold. The second Bugatti was the very first one to ever be sold to a customer. Um, now, you know, throughout history, it ended up being called the Bugatti Royale Coupe de Ville. And it started out as a Bugatti Royale, obviously. Um, they all started out somewhat similar. They initially made this as an open-top coupe design. Okay. Um, and then in April 1932, it was sold first to uh, a French businessman and then got purchased by a French politician. And this thing has a super interesting story. Almost every you know old Bugatti does. Um, it was then sold to the king of Romania, but due to World War II, it never got delivered to him. So it ended up staying in Paris. And uh, the people that were transporting the car actually hid it in the sewers of Paris so it didn't get taken or destroyed by the Nazis. And then after <laughs> World War II, it ended up in the UK um, for a little while, and then it finally made its way into the US. And it ended up being sold in Reno, Nevada for $45,000, which is what about what the car cost when it was new. So, you know, he, yeah. it got a steal on it. And then the next time it popped up, it got sold in 1986 to an American collector who kept it for a while and ended up offering up... Um, the vehicle for sale at the Barrett Jackson auction in 1996. Oh, no. He got offered $11 million for it and he refused it. What? He had his reserve set at like $15 million. So he knew what it was worth. Exactly. So fast forward a few more years in 1999, Volkswagen AG, Volkswagen Corporation, of course, now owns Bugatti. They come to this man's door and like, hey, we'll give you $20 million for it. So he sells it to him. And now it's a museum piece that runs all over the Good. world. But um, <laughs> while it was um, with that French politician, and it, it was that was actually when it was rebodied um, to the Coupe de Ville style, so that's why it actually has that name Coupe de Ville. Uh, I think it's Coupe de Ville Bender, B-I-N-D-E-R. But really, really neat story of a car. We'll have to showcase a couple of more Bugatti Royales. And that's what you know. If anybody thinks of like modern day Bugattis, and you look at these older ones, oh, they, this is they don't look like a Bugatti at all. No, this is my favorite pre-war car. I mean, it, it definitely is my favorite pre-World War II automobile, without a doubt. It's got to be. Yeah, the big body, long wheelbase. I know oh, you're talking massive yeah. car, massive car. I, I would love to see one in person because it is, it is, it's a statement. I mean, yeah, it is. Yeah, I can it, see it, why it there's commands presence. Any, um, what would you say, strong or powerful people would want to obtain this vehicle? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll go forward a little bit. Uh, March 4th, 1961, 60 years ago, Wendell Scott. Um, actually raced his first car, first NASCAR Grand National Race. Now, Wendell Scott is the first African-American ever to race in NASCAR. That's a, a well, in team. a Grand National circuit. Okay. There were, there were other African-American drivers before him that had driven, but this was the, he was the first one to actually make it into the NASCAR Grand National Circuit. Um, and he raced uh, in Spartansburg, South Carolina first. Now, that season, he actually made 23 starts and five top five finishes. 
five top five finishes. That's impressive for yeah. just and, rookie and, numbers. And, well, that you know? he was underfunded, like, of course. Yeah. I mean, as you might imagine, over his career, he stayed pretty competitive at NASCAR, but he was never really given the opportunity to have the financial backing from a really large company. And, and anybody that knows racing, that's, you know, unfortunately, the, yeah. the biggest key to it is how much play. money in your pocket. You got to pay to play. The one with the, well, the one with more money usually wins. <laughs> now, that being said, and as you may imagine, he was mistreated on many occasions throughout his career, but not all the time. Um, you know, there'd be a few people, a few assholes yelling racial slurs and stuff like this while he was driving. But what they came to find is the majority of the stands were actually getting up and rooting for the guy because they knew he was a good down home dude. He just wanted to race. Yeah. And even all the other racers, they had respect for the man. You know, they, did, they didn't see the color of his skin. They just knew that he was a racer and that he was there to do the same thing that they were there to do. And they all said he was a nice guy. So usually all the racers got along pretty well, um, especially in his later years. But um, one of my favorite parts of his story. One of the ones that sticks out in my mind, um, is this one time where he was, you know, basically involved in a race. He was set up to race and the promoters of the race gave every driver on the field, $15 for gas money, just, just for gasoline to, to run the race, but they didn't give it to Wendell. So Wendell was like, man, what the hell? You know I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a racer I'm, here. It doesn't matter. That I'm, I'm in black. this race. Exactly. So he walks up to Bill France. Bill France is the head of NASCAR, right? I mean, you know, he, he runs everything basically at this time. And he brings it up to Bill France. He's, you know, tells Bill what's going on. Bill looks at him and said, Wendell, I cannot believe you were treated that, that way. Mark my words, you will never be treated that way in NASCAR again. You'll never, ever be noticed by this color of your skin in NASCAR again. He reached into his own pocket and gave the man $30 of his own money to go get gas and watch him race. That's, that's awesome. That, that is awesome. So hats off to Bill France and yeah. way to go, Wendell. Seriously. That's what, yeah, I've always loved sports is, you know, there's this gray area where you just, it doesn't matter anymore. You're on the field, you're a team, you know, yeah. you're, you're a racer, people, you're a winner, man. you're a competitor, and, and that's what you're there to do. That's why We're I love human racing. Beings. I love racing. Human beings, the human race. All right. So uh, March 5th, 1955, 66 years ago, this one's a little kind of silly, but I just like it because it's the day that uh, BMW unveiled the Isetta. Now, some of you guys know what? exactly what an Isetta is, but it's a the, two-seater. The little... Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's obviously... BMW, when they came out with it, they, they told all these journalists, they're like, oh, yeah, we've got this new two-seater coming out. It's going to be really economical. It's going to be a great thing for Germany. And they the journalists get there, and they're, they're expecting a sports car. Yeah, you say two-seater. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Two-seater convertible. It's a BMW. And the Isetta, for the, those of you who don't know, it's a tiny... It looks like almost like a sphere. It's got, you know, windows, it's obviously. And it's like probably, the, the, the door is on the front. Yeah. Like it's on a hinge. You lift the whole nose of the car and the door and you like fall into the seat. Um, we actually I would call it like a golf cart size. Smaller probably. Is it? Yeah. I, would I mean, say. take like one of those little tykes, red and yellow oh, yeah. cars that you always <laughs> see everywhere. The, you know, step yeah. one, whatever it is. And make it for an adult. And put like actual rubber tires on it. And that's exactly what you have. <laughs> but the engine's in the back. It's got probably nine or 10 horsepower. I if mean, you saw it, you wouldn't think it's a car. But it is. It is indeed. <laughs> and they were really popular. The, the micro car um, phase lasted for a long time in Europe. I mean, all through the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of people that were driving them around. I still think it's super cool. Now, would I want to take it on the highway at 70 miles an hour? Absolutely not. Well, it's impossible. It doesn't do 70. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for around town, just to get everybody's faces, you know, kind of cheering yeah. up, that, that would be a cool car to, to have. It would be a pretty cool car to have. 
All right. Now, last up, uh, March 6th, 1976, 45 years ago. Um, so this was again at the South African Grand Prix. But this time uh, in 76, Nicky Lauda actually won it. Um, now, he won driving his Ferrari. Um, he was second from pole position. James Hunt was also in this race. Everybody knows the Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, rivalry. But uh, James Hunt was was on pole. Nicky Lauda got in front of James Hunt right at the start, beat him into the first corner, and um, he ended up running the whole race in front. And this was Lauda's third win in succession, right in a row. He finished just a, a second and a half, I think, above um, James Hunt. But the next driver back was um, the McLaren's um, other driver, not Hunt, but the McLaren's other driver. He finished over 40 seconds behind those two. So it's so funny. The only reason I bring this up is because it seems like any time that Nicky Lauda and James Hunt were both on that day and they both wanted a race and they were duking it out for one, two battle, they always left the rest of the field behind. <laughs> it was just <laughs> like, them two. It just shows you like those two were probably the most talented drivers on the field um, at the time. And once again, it goes back to why I love racing, you know, just when you have a competitive, like I think Wesley and I still have an argument about a go track, go kart track that we rode like two years ago. I won. Who actually won? I, I don't won. know. We might have to you re- remember what, redo you this. You remember what name was on top, right? Yeah, my name. Quickie. <laughs> no. That's uh, always what uh. I say. <laughs> I always put my name in as Quickie when I go into the go-kart track. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for tuning into the Car Tech Garage and, um, you know, listening to This Week in Automotive History. It's been real. It's been fun. And uh, I guess we'll see you guys next week. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing service beyond compare since 1936.